You are now listening to For the Record, a Blue Record miniseries. Yeah. Check it. Yeah. We in this together. A Spelmanite is a warrior fighting for justice. We can never be silent, so yeah, we causing a ruckus. Lift our voices up to bring injustice down. Speaking truth to power. We loving the sound, undaunted by the fight, love is all we need. It's time to clear out the air so we all can breathe. Ain't no stopping us, we stick together. This bond is gonna last forever, marching every day until we free. That's our buried treasure. Welcome back. This is Elizabeth. And this is Isis. And this is Lena. And this is Ty. It's great to be back with you all for our third episode this semester. Um, we're going to start off with our mental health check-in. How is everybody doing this week? I know we're about to start classes again tomorrow after spring break. How do we feel about this? I know myself personally, I am hurt. Um, I'm definitely feeling a little burnt out, but we are towards the end of the semester as fast as, as it did come. But um, I'm ready for it to be over, not going to lie, but I'm going to get through it, and that's all I can do, you know? I feel that. I agree. I also am ready for it to be over the semester, um, but spring break was really rejuvenating. It's just the act of doing nothing is amazing. Yeah, I feel that. Well, yeah, I agree with y'all. I'm definitely excited to do all my, you know, creative stuff and get grounded back into being a student, but I'm still on vacation mode, so I have to get used to being back in Atlanta and having responsibilities. I definitely understand that, but I'm glad we're all doing well and, you know, I think I think we'll make it through the rest of the semester because we have to. I think I'm hoping we're crossing our fingers that it'll be great. Nothing crazy happens. So this episode is actually really interesting. It is our first interview of the year. Oh wait, it's our first interview of the semester. We did have an interview last semester. So this is a really interesting topic, especially as we have come up on the two year anniversary of COVID. Um, something that we've come to realize uh, during this time of COVID is a lot of inequities that people refuse to acknowledge in schools, particularly the school to prison pipeline. So that's what our episode is about. We're going to have a bit of a conversation on this topic, and then we're going to interview someone who has been caught up into this school to prison pipeline, Shaquanda Cotton. So I want to start off by letting our listeners know if you don't know what the school to prison pipeline is. According to the, AT the ACLU, the school to prison pipeline is a disturbing national trend within wherein children are funneled out of public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice system. Many of these children have learning disabilities or histories of poverty, abuse or neglect, and would benefit from additional education and counseling services. Instead, they are isolated, punished, and pushed out. And usually um, this happens because of enforcement of zero tolerance policies in schools, and it disproportionately affects black and brown students. 
So I want to hear you all's thoughts on the school to prison pipeline. And also, um, Ty, you had an interesting take on it uh, connecting to activism in the AUC. So basically, upon like looking through Spellman's history of activism, of course, I knew that a lot like during the civil rights movement, a lot of women and men from the AUC, they participated in like SNCC and were um, involved in a lot of protests. But I didn't know that Howard Zinn, who is an activist and an author, taught at Spelman and encouraged his students to um, participate in these protests, even though he was later removed from his position as professor because of this. Um, and also Alice Walker, who went to Spelman for a little stint in her book Meridian, which is like a reflection on her, um, her experience as a student activist and how you know, Saxon College, which is based on Spelman College, kind of rate, well, they were more interested in matriculating their students to become marriable instead of becoming activists and revolutionaries. So I think during the time like of the 1960s, that's when we started to see the culture of the Spelman, like being shifted from, oh, these demure women who are too pristine to participate in activism to women who have like a large stake in activism and kind of set the forefront of like what activism looks like for like black women and Ruby Doris Smith Robinson, who was a former debutante, she like kind of understood and became the leader of the jail no bail movement. And she was kind of, she was the first woman to head the uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee committee uh, from Spelman. So I thought that was really interesting. Even though, like, I, st I still see this legacy of activism at Spelman, but also, like, we kind of have to get permission before doing a protest. So we kind of, like, s we saw how activism morphed from something that was unheard of and untalked about at Spelman to something that was integral to Spelman to something that is encouraged, but still highly controlled and highly postured. And this is something that I think is very interesting because during this time of introduction to activism at Spelman, what they don't tell you is that a lot of students were actually kicked out of school in the AUC, which I think is something that's almost hard to imagine that you want to stand up on behalf of the rights of black people, but you get kicked out of school for being an organizer. And a lot of these students who were kicked out of school were arrested. So it's like a very, almost like a very early tangentially related thing that happened to the school to prison pipeline, which we see in public schools. And I just, I found that very interesting um, that you found that and thought about that in the archives, Ty. Um, Lena and Isis, what are you all's thoughts on um, the AUC in relation to the school to prison pipeline and just the school to prison pipeline in general. It kind of related to this kind of documentary that I watched during ADW. It was titled like the foot soldiers, which were basically about the black women who attended Spelman, the class in 1964. So they were really here during the civil rights movement. And I remember watching it and I remember them talking about how Spelman College released a liability to um, like a release of liability to their mothers and their fathers and their guardians, basically stating that if their child chose to participate in whatever protest that they had going on, Spelman was not reliable. Like Spelman was not gonna be 
held or anything like that. So it was completely up to that protest. It was completely up to that student. So a lot of the people that we look at and think that Spelman, like, you know, like the activism of Spelman, a lot of it was completely voluntary. Like a lot of it was just out of our will. It wasn't our school. If anything, our school really didn't want us to do it. And I always found that interesting because Spelman always talks about how we change the world, but really the change agents are doing it on their own. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. I wholeheartedly second that. Um, a lot of my research for the Blue Record is grounded in respectability in the AUC. And a lot of times I'm seeing students um, at the front line of protests, at the front line of interrogating respectability politics on campus and in Atlanta. And that energy isn't really reciprocated by administration and it hasn't been historically. And so when we think about who is one trying to dismantle um, a lot of ideas and, and thoughts and rules and whatnot that are rooted in white supremacy and who is upholding those things. What, in my experience, what I'm seeing in current day and in the archives is that was really students who were doing that work, who did that work. Thank you for that. I think that's very, very true. And even today, a lot of the organizing work that I see on campus is around the school to prison pipeline and focusing on alternatives to this very carceral system of education where students really need help. They really need some sort of intervention other than violence, some sort of intervention other than being placed into this carceral state that really affects the rest of their lives. And I just, I think that that's really something that needs to be paid attention to because COVID kind of brought it to light, but it was definitely something that existed before COVID, I would say. And I wanted to know, did you all schools have zero tolerance policies um, and a lot of students who were sent into the juvenile system? I would say definitely, this not even my school, but Ohio, like the state of Ohio as a whole, there's been a lot of statistics about black women and black girls in Ohio. We're like disproportionately, um, suspended and expelled and stuff like that. We're always punished more, whether it's like a dress code policy. It's like basically stripping us of our education, but making us be targeted and have a record and stuff like that. We're actually like really looked into and it's actually really insulting. And honestly, I'm just grateful that I even got out of that to be able to not be not have a record knowing so many of the people next to me in my classroom that still does um it's really disheartening absolutely just speaking to ohio um i taught at a school with zero tolerance policies and a lot of times kids were suspended expelled um sent to in-school suspension for really small things or things that they were just being kids um, or even truancy and truancy is a big thing or the laws are a big thing in Ohio and that is also a way that students are sent to prison just for not coming to school and there's a lot of things that go into that and so I think Ohio is a really interesting case um, to look at for the school to prison pipeline because it's really bad. What I noticed in my school system, I'm a product of Atlanta Public Schools and DeKalb County school system so whenever somebody would, you know, fight or 
you know, <laughs> disrupt class, it would either be detention or suspension um, or expulsion in like extreme cases. But I always wondered, like, for people that had just been fighting, like, why is it that they're being detained in like a cement block classroom or in a trailer outside instead of like there being mediation and being um, like bringing in the school counselors? Like, I feel like this, it teaches students a lot about or it deprives students of mediation tactics and like kind of like conflict, conflict resolution. And I think that it's because they don't want students to learn how to resolve conflict. They want them to either conform or be detained or and get get used to that um, that state of mind and that state of being because that is the reality of people of black people in the United States. Like either we conform or we'll be detained or executed somehow. I think that's a very good point, Ty. The the system of punishment being the only option. And I think that's very much something that I witnessed in school. We had um, an alternative school called DAEP and the rules were much stricter there. And a lot of students were sent there for fighting, but even things as little as classroom disruptions or not wanting to participate in an assembly. I think that was really outrageous the amount of students that were sent there or how physical some things got when they didn't need to when a student felt that their punishment was unjust and they tried to speak out against it and so um we didn't quite have a zero tolerance policy but it was very much closer to one for students of color and that was very obvious um where i went to school in texas near dallas so I definitely think though that there's other things that could have been done because they always talk about how something happens and we have counselors available, but where are those counselors when, you know, a student is having trouble and the only thing that they can do is act out in class, but you just want to send them to alternative school rather than helping. And so I, I definitely think that this is a conversation that is really important for all of us to have. And now we want to bring in the voice of someone who has directly been affected by the school to prison pipeline. Um, this is Shaquanda Cotton. We have had the pleasure of reading her memoir and we're so glad to have you here. Um, we just want to welcome you and to thank you for talking with us today for being willing to share your experience with us, with the world, with our listeners. And um, we're just really excited to hear what you have to tell us. Uh, Shaquanda, would you like to say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. It's really, really great to meet you. So we will get into our interview questions and I believe Isis is up first. Hello. So um, my first question was, in the first chapter of your memoir, you mentioned how you felt ashamed that you were afraid of confronting the administration on behalf of your daughter. Um, black women as a whole are dehumanized and stripped of femininity by girlhood. And it's to the point where we grow up in a society where the strong black women stereotype that we probably all know about is very prevalent. How important is it to humanize black mothers and allow black women to feel vulnerable? 
I think it is important for women to be able to be encouraged and to be able to go to therapy and be given like other safe spaces to communicate and communicate their trauma and heal. Yes, absolutely. I think um, I agree wholeheartedly on therapy. I think therapy is a great tactic um, that all black women should embrace. Also, um, how do you think that this realization has helped you personally grow in your motherhood? I think it helped me to grow in motherhood because it forced me to recognize my strength and how important it was for me to work on different areas to parent in the healthiest way possible in the birth trauma cycle, generational trauma cycle. Yes. Generational trauma is very deep-rooted, and I think that... um, Black mothers as a whole is kind of like the root of it. I feel like black mothers are the change agents, are the people that could really make a change and um, allowing black women to be vulnerable and to show that to their children really does create a new generation. Thank you. Uh, This is Elizabeth again, Chiponda. Um, My first question for you is, um, so in your childhood, uh, when you wrote about your childhood, you talked about how Children of color are tem- children of color are tempted by outside influences, and how those influences oppose what our loved ones instill in us. And so, um, within this current generation, uh, your generation, or even the generation of your children, what do you think are the major outside influences on the youth, and how can their loved ones combat them? I think the biggest influence is of this generation. Peer influences, um, teachers at the school, loved ones can be more reassuring that they are safe at home and that they are primary places to go for nurturing. That's really good. I I like that, that letting children know that they can be nurtured because I feel that in a lot of ways, especially with COVID going on, children can tend to feel isolated in this day and age. So knowing that someone is there for them is really, really important. Um, So my next question is, although the school to prison pipeline is acknowledged in our society, the discrimination against black children is nothing new in the United States, despite um, past legislation. As an activist, as you being an activist, what is something that you would say that individuals can do themselves to become foot soldiers again to help work against the school to prison pipeline and the criminalization of children? Hello, I'm Brenda Cherry. I'm a civil rights activist. Hello, Ms. Brenda. This is Elizabeth Gowans. It's really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I think you have to take uh, cases. You know, we cannot uh, end racism. We cannot end discrimination. It's always going to be there. So we have to take one case at a time. And I think uh, what teachers and other people need to learn is that you need to treat other people's children like you would your own uh, in the same circumstances. And so sometimes you have to reinforce that. You have to make them do that. And so uh, parents need to listen to their children and believe their children. Their children are not always... Uh, lying and teachers are not always truthful. 
So we take it one case at a time, and uh, that's how you uh, go about changing the situation. I thank you for that insight. I think that's very important wisdom that you just gave us, especially as far as students not always being the ones in the wrong, even when parents are told that they are, because that is a very, very prevalent topic. Yes. Now I'm turning it over to Lena. Hi, my name is Lena, and I would love to keep um, kind of at this line of questioning and kind of look at how can schools and adults shift how they interact with black youth to lessen punitive and harsh disciplinary practices in schools? They uh, tend to stereotype. You know, mostly we have uh, white female teachers and they sometimes look at, uh, in particular, black boys in a certain way. They stereotype them. They have low expectations from the beginning. And so we, we have to change that. And, you know, we can do that by being, uh, make sure we're involved in our uh, children's education. Don't, don't just assume that the teachers are going to do everything and the teachers need to stop assuming um, that the parent uh, is the only one responsible for the discipline. You know, it's a three-way street. It's the student, the parent, and the teacher. And, you know, everyone has to work together, come up with, when there's a problem, they need to work together to come up with a solution and on an individual case because uh, what's good for one is not good for another. Every kid uh, reacts differently. You know, you have some children that come to school after they've been abused or up all night or what have you, and you have to take that into uh, consideration when you're dealing with kids. And so um, uh, uh, communication is one of the key things, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree with your answer. I think that a lot of times teachers or adults in school buildings, they don't look at children, especially black children, as human beings or as children. Like They're seeing them as adults who can make well-informed decisions, but like they're still kids. So I... What you said really resonated with me. Um, and I'd also question, I would love to hear your thoughts on if how you think the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the school-to-prison pipeline. Well, I personally haven't uh, studied up on that, so uh, I haven't seen an effect myself, but that doesn't mean it's you know not happening. So I don't know. I can't answer that one. I, I know that um, kids, you know, we have the school to prison pipeline, and with COVID, at one point, the kids were having to be homeschooled or distant learning, and I would assume that that would cut down on, you know, being uh, written up and sent to alternative schools or pre um, jails because they're home, but now they're back in school, so, you know, I really, I haven't... Uh, studied that enough to give a intelligent answer to it well thank you for answering my questions um and your insight it was really really revealing um and i'm going to turn it over to ty okay thank you i'll give it back to shaquanda hi again this is ty and this is kind of like a personal question about identity formation um so all of your chapters in your memoir begin with i am 
or the titles of your chapters. Do you view your experiences with the criminal justice system and the school to prison pipeline as a punctuation mark on your story in a formation of your identity or as a girl your life? I don't necessarily view them as a punctuation mark. I use the I am to represent the different places I was in my life during those times. I took strength from writing the book and taking back my power and by the end of it was ready to proclaim who I was, who I am in, in the eyes of God, not others. What others labeled to me, to, labeled me to be. That's really powerful, especially like as me, like as a, you know, a black college student, since most like black women, we do struggle to define ourselves and years of trying to define ourselves within our own gaze and within like the gaze of the omniscient instead of people who view us. And I guess my follow-up question to that and my last question is, what's next? Like how will your aid you in achieving what you want in the future? I just want to be able to just move forward and become the healthiest version of myself that I can. And hopefully I can sell a million books. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Saquanda. That was really, really great. And thank you, Ms. Brenda, also for chiming in. Um, we've had a really great time today. I've been really informed by this conversation on the school to prison pipeline on activism and its relation on reasons why we should think harder on the way that we treat children and the way that they are disciplined and how we need to consider different interventions into children's lives rather than our first step being violence or punishment. I, I think that Shaquanda, you have provided some really great insight for us today, and we thank you so much for being with us. It's been really, really great, and yeah, team, I just, I had a great time today. I had fun talking about this conversation, even though it is a heavy topic, and I implore all of our listeners to go and learn more and educate yourselves on the School to Prison Pipeline so that you too can help change this phenomenon within the United States because our black and brown students do not deserve this. All right. Once again, we would like to thank Shaquanda for being with us today. You can find her book, Memoir of a Teacher's Laughing B-Word, I Am Shaquanda Cotton, on lulu.com. That is L-U-L-U.com, on Amazon, and on barnesandnobles.com. Thank you everyone for listening today. You have been listening to For the Record, a Blue Record mini series. Follow us at The Blue Record on Instagram and Twitter. And please read our blog on thebluerecordpodcast.com. And also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you can listen to a podcast and leave a review. Thank you. <laughs>